Welcome to Alligator Preserves, everyone. I am Laurel McCarg, host of today's show. And today you are going to meet a woman who is a writer, musician, and a retired professor of Latin American literature, Spanish linguistics, and creative writing. Her name is Kathy Taylor, and we're going to talk about her book today, Trees and Other Witnesses. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. I am delighted to have you. So first of all, I'm going to tell the audience, I met you through Chafee County Writers Exchange, Mm -hmm. of which we're both members. And I'm always curious about new writers and what they write. And so I went on Amazon and I I did the little peek inside the book kind of thing for Trees and Other Witnesses. And you had me on, on page one. And I, I just want to say I, I had to download it and then I had to buy it in hard copy because this is a book I'm going to treasure forever. So my first question to you is, how did growing up in a Quaker community in Pennsylvania inform your writing and, and ultimately your life? Wow. It's just a little question. Yeah, no, just a little <laughs> question. <laughs> well, I think... Um, the first story in the book, well, I'll, I'll back up. I had written a lot of these stories some years ago, and I was always wrestling with the question of how does Kathy Taylor, you know, very clearly a, a gringo name, you know, write about all these stories that grabbed my my heart and my, my interest over the years, my years in Latin America. And so I think my husband suggested, well, you have to write a story about you. Um, and so... I did have a kind of magical childhood in this Quaker community in in Pennsylvania, full of marvelous trees. First of all, <laughs> that apparently it was it was several different estates that were gradually put together, and apparently one of the owners was in love with trees, and so he had brought in quite a collection of trees that didn't necessarily belong there. And but it was also an international sort of retreat study center that brought people from all over the world. So I grew up in this sort of wonderful collection, diversity of trees and diversity of people who came and went. And I was just a little kid free to roam the 18 acres of sort of beautiful land and old stone buildings. And so I think I just had this love of trees um, that were sort of my guardians and companions and people of all different kinds. I heard lots of different languages. So this book for me is kind of about falling in love with language and trees <laughs> and sort of how they both have a kind of, I don't know, spiritual center for me, I guess. Your first story in, in here, and you have 13 stories. I'm going to ask you why 13 in a minute, but your first story <laughs> is called The Rope Swing and told through the innocent eyes of a child. And one of the sentences stopped me, who is war? <laughs> it just, it gave me goosebumps because 
it was so real. And you talk about um, waiting for the bomb to drop. I remember my oldest sister, who had some early education with the sisters of wow. St. Francis, they would threaten the children that if they were bad, then the Russian tanks would, would come through the streets oh, and pick right. up bad children. So anytime a snowplow would go through, I grew up in the South Shore uh -huh. of Boston, she would quake in fear thinking that the tanks were coming through. So you, you have a little yes. bit of that too. And it just, it just really, it just really grabbed yeah. me. Do you have a favorite tree? I know this is going to be a hard question to answer, but you grew up with so right. many. Yeah. It'd be a toss up between the old American beech tree, which is featured in the, in the rope swing story and a tree that was really two trees. There was a, I think it was a walnut of some sort a uh, black walnut, and it had a wisteria vine growing up around it, very thick vine that sort of looped and roped around this other tree. And we called it the monkey tree because you could climb up it and there were various sort of vines that you could hang from or, you know, sort of climb around. And that features actually in another story in a, in a very indirect way. But I think those two were my favorite, the the old beech tree, which I called the elephant tree, and and the monkey tree, which was really too. <laughs> Again, growing up in New England, we had all kinds of maples. And I remember in the fall, or the, the little seedlings that would really gig down. They were like little yes, helicopters. The airplanes. Would, would peel them and yes. stick them. Did you stick them on your nose? On your nose. Pinocchio nose. Absolutely. <laughs> Love doing and, that walk. And, the sugar or, maples, too. Yes. The, yeah. Walking to school, leaves, kicking yeah. through all the leaves. I remember <laughs> when my father bought a weeping willow tree and a, a young weeping willow tree for our yard. And just the, the name of it, weeping willow, something about it was magical. And I felt like yep. we had the most special tree in the neighborhood. Everybody had the maples. Oh. See, now I have to revise my choice because there was also, we had a weeping, the weeping cherry tree oh. that was just, and it was very old and it, so sort of an old trunk, but then it had these cascades of pink flowers in the spring and then next to it were some magnolia trees. And so you had this sort of magical cascade of flowers, sort of vines with flowers. And then you had a carpet of magnolia blossoms. So, Oh, my gosh. Spectacular. Secret yeah. garden kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that, that you dedicated your book in haiku. Yes. I oh, kind of like haiku. You, you dedicated yes. it to trees who bear witness, keeping watch over it all, our breathing partners. <laughs> Love it. Why 13 stories and not 12 and not 14? That was not a conscious calculation. I'll tell you, I had 10 stories that I had written years ago and it didn't feel quite complete. And the book wasn't quite long enough for some of the contests or, you know, it, it, it just, uh, and so I kept that's one of the reasons, things that kept me from sort of finishing it because I thought, oh, I need to write some more stories. And I was just so busy with my career and my family. And I just didn't think I had it in me at that point. And I was writing other things. And so then it was just fairly recently that um, some friends were visiting and said, whatever happened to those stories you were, you wrote a long time ago. And so I was like, I need to write some more stories. Now's the time. And the first, so I had the 10, the first one was the, the rope swing because my husband said, well, you know, you're supposed to write about yourself, you know, give it a context. And then I had some friends, the same friends, one of them was from Nicaragua, 
I had a long relationship with him as a student and colleague. And, and he said, oh, well, you have to write about the Guanacaste tree in, in Nicaragua. And he gave me a little background of his, his childhood. So then that one came. And then I thought, well, I need to have one, you know, in the Ark Valley, which is my, my new beloved home. And so it wasn't a number. It was just what happened. <laughs> well, it happened beautifully, and I happen to like the number thirteen. And I think a lot of people do too. Um, <laughs> you, I don't want to embarrass you, but oh my goodness, the figurative language—you are—you are a master of figurative language. And how do you do it? This is one of the most difficult things for writers, I think, sometimes, yes. because, you know, we're told you need to add figurative language into your stories, right? You need to have uh, similes and metaphors and, and juxtapositions. <laughs> and, and sometimes when you're reading things, you see, oh, someone was told to put something here and it's forced mm. and it has uh -huh. nothing to do with the story. Your figurative language elements are stunning and and surprising and and so woven into your work i i how did you learn how to do them and then i, I have to share some of them well thank you i that's that's really kind of you to to say that i, yeah, I mean, um, who taught you <laughs> no that's I, I you know i i taught creative writing for quite a while when i was teaching and and i had to tell students first of all i don't really know how this happens i have written you know books I've written for years. It's the same with composing songs. Over the years, I've gained a certain amount of confidence because it does happen, but it's always sort of mysterious to me. It, I feel like it's channeled. It is not something I think, oh, I should put this in here and put that in there. It's kind of like writing poetry. Um, I started doing that when I was young and, you know, they weren't very good, of course, but it wasn't about learning tricks as much as learning to open up to it. And I think I wrote a poem once, I don't know, when I was a young adult that, and it was something like, uh, I feel a poem coming on, no cure. So I went to bed to wait for it. So it's that sort of sense of it just, you can't control it. You can't contrive it. It just, it happens to you. And then after that first sort of happening of whatever it is, the beginning of it, that's very exciting to me. Then I start looking at it. I put my glasses on and start looking at it. And I'm like, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't what, it wasn't what I thought. I, you know, what it, it's not doing it. And then I, then the hard work comes. But a lot of it just is a, I don't know, a, a kind of unconscious opening to something. It's like when you're when a character will tell you the next thing they're going yes. to say, and it's a surprise, which yes. I love doing when I'm oh, writing. Yes. I mean, even even in your your title, trees and other witnesses, you're mm -hmm. you're personifying the tree, right? I I had to laugh when in the first story in the rope swing when the little girl narrator is talking about nightmares, oh. and and how it, it shouldn't be called nightmares because. Horses running through the night is a beautiful thing. Nightmares, the playing with the with the puns, really. And yeah. she thought that it, they should be called night snakes instead because she was so afraid of snakes. And uh, I, I just I I want to read some things. So uh, in the new dance, one of your stories, um, the narrator used to be afraid of trees, and in daylight, the streets were our home. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, she talks about the sun would catch them shivering and ashamed of their nakedness. Again, the, the, the trees shivering and ashamed of their nakedness. Beautiful. Let me see. What else What else do I have? I have, I have so many things labeled here. In Family Tree, which again, all these, sto- all these stories are stories about people and the tree, the, whatever tree you focus on is woven into it so beautifully. Like a wild vine, I grew without direction, winding my way around my brother's steady presence. I mean, mm, gorgeous. That was the monkey tree story. I mean, the monkey tree. The image just inspired. Yeah. It. Yes. The juxtaposition again in, in family tree, there's a storm coming. A single tree branch extended from the mud drawn in stark lines against the dawn nearby a human hand was reaching toward the sky in a final futile gesture. <sighs> you know, this might be the, just the time to say that these stories were all products of my imagination, but fueled by th- real things either that I witnessed or that I read about. In that particular story, uh, one time when I was in Mexico, there there were you know after drought, um, then there were floods, and there was a flood in the in the hills, these villages, and and the mud just washed out a whole village. And I saw a picture oh. of that. The tree branch and the and the hand, it was, you know, and it's 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 so interesting to me about creativity. I mean, some things, everything comes from somewhere, right? It's right. I mean, your own experience or some even some contact you don't even remember that you had. I mean, you know, your subconscious is full of things you remember, things you experience, things you imagine, and how they all mix together. But that picture that I saw in a newspaper just you know, stayed present with me. And sometimes the things, sometimes reality outdoes our imaginations. Sometimes things that happen, actually happen, you know, are just more kind of impossible than <laughs> what we can imagine. And, and that happened to me a lot in writing these stories. Would, would you say that every story in this collection has an autobiographical element? No, not for me. I mean, but well, I mean, I don't know where, the, where you draw the line, you know, that uh, there were, they were all inspired by places I've been and experiences I've had, and a lot of research in some cases. So it is that wonderful meeting of experience, observation, and, and um, imagination. So an autobiographical, not in the sense that they happened to me, but, but in the sense that I had some connection. Are any yeah. of them, are any of them? more autobiographical than other is is the rope swing the rope swing is clearly clearly so um i would say you know indirectly you know the 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 story the, the the new dance that you read a little from i spent some time in that part of chicago and in the sort of mexican village area in pilsen and you know so so i identified with and i met i met many Mexican families. I had a little program there. I took students to, and you know, so so I I heard the stories. I had, I had worked with, with the sanctuary movement some, so I knew what it was like for immigrants. So, but not directly, you know, personally, it wasn't my story, and that's true of so many of them. The one called "Against the Grain of Time." Um, that one uh, about a little 
little boy about seven years old. A child bard. A child yeah, bard. You child bard. Oh, lovely, I wanted to lovely. read something from that too, but go yeah. ahead. Anyway, but that one is actually in, in a, a little little village in Mexico that has this actual tree that is just unbelievably huge and, and rising out of sort of the desert. And so the actual tour part of it, where this, this child is narrating to you about the tree in many different languages that he doesn't even speak, that all happened as I wrote it pretty much. And then I imagined switching back a thousand years with this same tree being there and sort of a kind of, I don't know, epic poetic narrative of, of that. But, you know, so some of the most amazing things are, are things that happened. I was there listening to this little child bard and being fascinated by how he used his little mirror to, you know, focus the sun on different places on the tree. And, uh-huh. and again, his bright green shirt matches those of other boy narrators swirling slowly around the tree like prematurely fallen leaves. I mean, the, the story is so poignant and, and it's so, I mean, all of your stories are moving. I mean, they move me. There have been times when I've, when I've gasped. Uh, let me, I mean, I, I, you can see all my, t- I have so many tabs here, but like this you, little. You're like my favorite students who would oh, come to class oh with my, their tabs. Yeah. Well, the thing is this book, and again, as writers, and I tell my other writer friends, we should, we need to not only read voraciously and in many different genres, but read critically. Right. And this book makes it so easy to read critically and just say, oh, how, how did she do that? I mean, so talking about the spider, she watched a spider aglow in the sunlight as it flew up its silver thread, a free fall in reverse. So, you know, just that, just that image of, and, we, and we've all seen spiders, you know, doing that. Just beautiful. So like everything in here, you could teach a lesson on. I think. So thank you for that. This is like a free lesson on how to use figurative language in, in your work. But I don't know that you could teach everyone that. I, you know, I, I so enjoyed teaching creative writing and I made it clear that I, I was experienced, but I don't really know a lot about it in terms of, you know, my, my general philosophy was you put people and you've done this. I, I, I did a workshop with you you put people in a situation, you give them parameters. And I would explain to my students, you know, we think writing is about freedom. Writing is about having certain constraints and then seeing what, what bounces around in there. And so, you know, I, there was, I would, it wasn't, I, I wasn't so much about telling students how to write, how do you do this? But here's some parameters. Here's a, a kind of place to go. And then, see what happens to you. And a lot of them doing, this was all in Spanish because I was professor of Spanish. And so for a lot of students, some of them were native speakers and some were just barely advanced enough to do this. But many of them felt the kind of freedom they hadn't had before because this was in another language. So that gave them this like protective filter of this isn't me, this is trying something out. And almost, you know how children can be so poetic without realizing they are? Mm-hmm. When you're learning another language, that can happen too, because your tools are reduced. So you're sort of forced, in a way, to work poetically. And 
it surprised people. I mean, it was not everything was, of course, fabulous. Um, never is for any of us, but it was somewhat magical. Um, I would find native speakers feel humbled by their language, and I would find students just just approaching a kind of advanced level, feeling liberated by it. So, uh, yeah. But I, I don't have lots of rules or you know tips or except just you have to get some of the stuff out of the way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, and be be sort of pushed into something and like you you gave a bunch of prompts you know and even as an experienced writer my first response is oh no you know <laughs> oh no I'm lost you know but but then to open your mind and say huh let's play with it just playful yeah yeah and so. Would and you? I also, I, one more thing I would say, I, I've, I've also been very influenced by some of my favorite Latin American writers. Name some. And they're veterans. They've been around for a long time. So they're not the ones everybody likes to say in my, in my field, you know, but um, Isabel Allende and Rosa, she's Chilean and, and Rosario Ferrez, Puerto Rican and Elena Garro, Mexican. And Sandra Cisneros is a, is a Latinx Latina writer. In fact, the, the the new dance was somewhat influenced by her writing about Chicago and and yeah, so and many many others. But Isabel Allende is one of the most poetic storytellers that I know. Just and and you can tell she's not trying. It just it it's that oral storytelling kind of tradition. That Will you read something from your book, please? And for those of you just joining us. We are visiting with Kathy Taylor, author of Trees and Other Witnesses, an absolutely glorious collection of 13 stories about people and situations, all with an element that involves a tree of some sort. Well, yeah, it, it's hard for me to choose because each of these stories has, a, I have a particular connection to it, but I, I decided to do one that's a little bit humorous. And it's it it takes place in a village that's on the sort of the, the skirts of the volcano Popocatépetl in Mexico. There are sort of villages that wind their way up the volcano. Mm-hmm. Our students, my students, used to go and, and spend a week each in a different village with a family and have a really amazing experience. And um, I just felt though my experience in those villages was always kind of. I don't know how to describe it, kind of surreal almost, you know, the the the, the people you'd meet and the, the stories and the setting was just amazing. So um, this story is called Burn in Love. And it's about a, a village that is on the sort of partway up the volcano. And there's a Sokolo, which is like the town square in these villages, just the center of the village. And this one has a, an old fig tree that is the center of the village. If the tree could talk, It might tell about the time that Ilario confessed his love for Natalia in an impulse as unplanned and unstoppable as a sneeze. There in the Sokolo on a quiet Tuesday evening, it had just burst out of him, and she'd stood there blinking for a moment, spattered by his unexpected passion. The tree waited like a blind old chaperone, disregarded by the young lovers as if it were deaf as well. The old fig tree was the heart of the village, the very center of the plaza in La Sombra del Volcán, the name of the village, which means the the shadow of the volcano. 
It had seen countless seasons of bloom and fruit, and it held many secrets under its discreet branches. Looming to the east was the massive volcano that had given the village its name, but the tree in the square was the steady axis around which life revolved. Although Ilario and Natalia didn't meet for the first time in the shade of the stately tree, the seeds of their future romance were surely planted one Saturday evening when he walked by and handed her a small bunch of gardenias. That too had been a spontaneous gesture, an astrological coincidence when everything lined up and fate guided his hand, the woman selling the flowers, the pesos jingling in his pocket, the giddy perfume of the gardenias and Natalia's sweet face under the tree as he passed. She was sitting on the bench watching as the whole town came out for the weekly parade around the Socolo. Saturday nights were festive in La Sombra del Volcan. While the mariachis tuned their instruments, people strolled along slowly, later adjusting their pace to the pulsing beat of the large-bellied guitarron. The tree was the reference point around which everyone looped and circled to tie the social knots that held the community together. Ilario and Natalia's parents had done the same dance in another time, having been conceived themselves from the first passionate meeting of their own parents under the blind gaze of the old tree. The trees are witnessing everything. The way... How, how do you know when your story is going to end? Because again, the ending of that particular story, <laughs> and I, I have to say the tree of the little hands. Oh, oh it, I almost chose a passage from there. Cause I have, I love the relationship with of the, the woman with the tree, but <sighs> tree of the little hands. It, it took my breath away. The ending took my breath away. Oh, thank you. Did you know it was going to end the way it is? And I, I'm not going to tell no. anyone how it ends. But. No, no. I I don't think, I think the only one that I knew how it would end was the one called Mirage about a group of immigrants of people mm-hmm. yeah. wa- walking through the desert to cross the border, uh, each with their own sort of story and reason. And I don't want to give away too much, but I read a little piece in the newspaper, a Mexican newspaper. It was just a little paragraph about a group of Mexicans who had been found desert, dead in the desert. And there was a, a, a small baby was the only one alive. And that was what inspired the story. So I wanted to imagine the story of all of those crossing the desert. It was the first of these stories that I wrote. And it just so happened I was in Germany in the summer. <laughs> My husband was doing research. And so I was there in this wonderful old house and, and writing that story that I knew how it would end, which is actually awful in a way, because I had complete control over imagining the backstory. And I found myself crying through the story because I fell in love with the characters, but I knew how it was going to end. And that was just, (laughs) it was hard. Yeah. Some of your essays are are hard to read. Yeah. Well, because of the, because of the intensity. Yeah. Yeah. Of the expression. Yeah, yeah, well. But the others, uh, the story unfolds. Yeah, it just happens. I mean, one of Isabel Allende's books that, that I loved was, uh, it's about a writer sort of writing about writing and the writer in the story, all of these characters end up moving in with her in this house she's living in. And 
it just gets crowded and chaotic and they're coming by, they're doing their thing all the time. And, you know, she's trying to write and that sort of sense of the characters move in with you and you, you are on the journey with them, but you aren't in control of everything. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I ever had the endings clear until they happened. Wow. Except that one, which I wanted to, I wanted to resist. <laughs> wow. They all end in a place that leaves a reader stunned, surprised, uh, emo- emotional. You, you have all the emotions in here, all, all of them. <laughs> Did you interview anyone for any of your stories? Hmm, that's a good question. No, interview, no. I Like some of your characters might not know they're in here, but maybe you're... Um, yeah, that's that, let's, that's a good question. I'm trying to think. Um, oh, well, okay, the, the very last story that takes place in Nicaragua, this dear friend of mine who, who's also a former student said, oh, you should write a story about this particular tree, the Guanacaste tree. And his the his town. This is actually about the town of Ocotal, which is sort of a p- provincial city up in sort of in the mountains, and which I fell in love with. And I, um, I I took a program there for two different semesters and lived with a host family. And so a lot of that story comes from stories that I heard from lots of people, but particularly this young man's family, who became my family. They were my host family. And so there is definitely some of that family's story in, in it, but it's, it's imagined the characters themselves are imagined. There's some others where, you know, while I was in Mexico, I heard stories about things. So. Uh, The, is it a mate tree? Yes. That Uh one where the, they have the cabecitas, (laughs) the little heads. Yes. And And and, that was my own experience. Yes. In a a, a real village. Okay. Um, Yes. Just the, those little, in fact, I. You have some of those? I have one. I, yeah, I bought one from a guy at a, at an archeological site who, you know, showed me the, the general stuff you showed to tourists. And after we got into deep conversation, he sort of surreptitiously took another one out of his bag and said, how about this? And, you know, I was skeptical that it was real. How can you be selling, you know, real archeological mm-hmm. relics? And, and he told me, you know, we find them on our land. We're supposed to give them to the museum. The museum has boxes and boxes of these, you know, in storage. And we have to eat this week. And we find, you know, and so it's the dilemma. It's, it's our patrimony. We honor it, but I have to buy food for my family. And so if, and I'm not supposed to sell these, but if you will buy it. And so it was an ethical dilemma for me too, but I ended, did end up buying it and um, believed him. You know, I had no way of knowing, but. And those are, um, they're, they're carvings of little heads. Yeah, little right? sort of. Yeah, stone carvings that that they just dig up the ground and they're you know and they find them. Um, so this was a combination of two different sites, but I was picturing a real site as I wrote the story. The story itself is fiction, but they call them what regalos de la de la tierra, yeah, la tierra. gifts yeah. from the from, from the, the earth. Yeah, you just dig, and there are these. Yeah, and that for me is a metaphor of so much of Mexican history. There is. Um, there's ancient history, well, all, all levels of times, but ancient history that erupts from the ground. You know, in Mexico City, they they dig to build a new building, 
and uncover a temple, you know, from ancient times. And so there it is, they work around it. And so it just sits there as part of the modern landscape, you know? And so it's, I always felt like, you know, in Mexico, whenever you dig, the past is right there. It doesn't get destroyed. It just gets covered with. (laughs) And so there's that sense of real connection that we don't have much of in this country, Um, maybe more in Europe, but particularly in, in Mesoamerica, there's this sense of ancient history being right there next to the present. You speak several languages? Yeah, it depends on your definition of, you know, I, I am, I am, I'm near, I'm close to native in, in Spanish. Uh, Papiamento is a Creole, Caribbean Creole language that I speak that I'm also very fluent in. I was very fluent in German at one point in my life. It's, it's one of those buried beneath the surface, that, <laughs> you know, uh, I can get it back when I'm immersed in it, but, and Portuguese, I was also quite fluent in when I was in graduate school, um, but not near native. Oh, in English. Yeah. I'm good at English. <laughs> that would, I was going, I was going to ask you, what is the most beautiful language that you know? Oh, that's such a, that's, I got that question so often. I, I have had people tell me German is ugly and harsh. Spanish is beautiful. You know, I, I definitely believe that the Romance languages are beautiful. They have a kind of music to them that I love. But I know a side of German that is also very beautiful. What very side? Quiet. What side? Tell me about it. <laughs> it is not the Hogan's Heroes or the, the movie Nazi German that you hear. I mean, there are poets, you know, there's, there's incredible poetry, incredible lyrical poetry and songs in German that any professional singer, you know, of classical singer knows. So I don't think I've met a language that I didn't think was fascinating. Um, I think the ones I speak are beautiful. Papiamento, the, the Caribbean Creole one, makes me laugh a lot. It's very creative in the way that haiku or that child, a child's poetic instinct, or I mean, not even instincts, just a child's poetic um, rhythm, or- rhythm way of expression, often due to limited language. Um, Creole languages. Are, are, have fewer elements to them because they are born of a, of in the um, contact between two languages that can't communicate with each other, very often result of colonization. So the interplay of that starts out in a very limited, what's called a pigeon, which is just sort of a creative way of finding certain structures and certain vocabulary in common and being able to communicate. And I have to be careful not to get too carried away with this. Well, well you, you say it makes you laugh. I have a soapbox, but, but I won't get on it right now. But anyway, <laughs> but these languages become very poetic and creative because of dealing with a, a more simplified grammar and a reduced vocabulary. The things are combined in very poetic ways, very expressive, I find. And so it makes me laugh, not in a ha-ha that it's funny, but in a a, an appreciative chuckling sort of way. Joy, about, a joyful, like a surprise, yeah, like a delightful yeah, surprise. Kind of a wordplay kind of, you know, just that where you just really appreciate. Um, so, um, but I have, I've found beauty in every language that I have been exposed to and wish I had a couple more lives so I could learn to speak more of them, but I find great joy in language. Well, I find great joy in the language that you used in your book and let's see, on page 143, toward the end there, um, you talk about 
the watchful Aspens. And, and the narrator says, we all share the same roots. She heard them say, we are all one. And again, that's a story of a, of a young gal kind of finding her roots and tree, trees throughout history. I mean, you don't, you don't talk about um, the apple tree in the garden. <laughs> Have you done anything I mean, with that yet? Oh, I mean, there's so many trees. I mean, it's, it, I, I keep, meeting new trees and thinking, Oh, there's a story. So yeah. And it's, and, you know, you have, you have apple trees that are ancient and that have been grafted and yeah, I mean, there's stories everywhere. It's, uh, yeah. Um, is there, is there going to be a trees see more things? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, if I could just, um, go off on a tangent a little bit, a, a book I wrote earlier about taxi drivers in Mexico, not about, well, I, I, it started out as an ethnographic project talking to taxi drivers and I collected their stories and created a fictional context. And, um, and after it came out in Mexico, a number of Mexicans read it. They, when I would run into them, they would say, Oh, but I have a story for you. You didn't include this story or that story. Um, and so that one is a sort of never ending, you know, it, it, it and it kind of, the ending is kind of open anyway, but, um, and I, I, I feel that way with the trees. It was just the stories that happened to me, but I thought of so many more in, in the Ark Valley. The one you mentioned about the Aspens obviously takes place in the Ark Valley. And there were so many more that ideas that came to me, but I just, the book felt done. So, but uh, are you, so what, what are you working on right now? Um, Besides more songs. I know you're also a songwriter. Well, the, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit uh, held captive by some some music stuff, and also by this linguistic project, the the language project, this Caribbean language that I'm creating a free online course, and it's it's a huge thing. So I kind of circle circulate between projects. I think I told you once about an idea for a novel that I had that has always seemed impossible and overwhelming. But if I clear the decks at some point, I think I'd like to work on that. Um, Maybe next November. <laughs> next NaNoWriMo. Yeah, uh, maybe. Another thing I wanted to tell you, some good news I got recently that that this that this Trees book um, has been chosen for the Within Our Range. Have you heard about the new book discussion project that's happening in, in Chafee County? Uh, no. It just started. and uh, They're going to do it four times a year. And in October... There was a book about the Anthropocene. I can't by I can't remember the author, and that was the book they had. So the libraries feature it, and then um, and it's, they're they're reading all books that are about sort of human interaction with nature. Garna is another sponsor. So the Salida Library, the BB Library, and Garna, which is the Greater Arkansas River Nature Association, of which I'm a member. So anyway, so I had sent a copy of the book to the Garner library. And, and so they ended up choosing it for the next reading in Chafee County. Fabulous. So, and congratulations. And I can't imagine them choosing any better book to talk about well, nature and trees so and, and how so, to do that. Yeah. Do you, do you, what, what advice do you have for, for writers, general, general advice, because, you know, obviously we all write the same way and the same number of hours a day and on, on the same location. <laughs> right. Um, and we all have a formula that we just do, right? <laughs> um, I think my biggest advice would be just do it. I mean, um, 
I never thought of myself for a long time. I didn't, I didn't think of myself as a writer somewhere, not too long ago. I was suddenly like, Oh, I write, I guess I'm a writer. Wow. (laughs) You know, my first book was an academic book, which I also wrote very, I was told wrote it kind of with a lot of the, the kind of imagery and, you know, lyricism, because it was about four Mexican writers and the way they write. And I don't know. Anyway, I, I think I think the biggest challenge is to get out of your own way. You know, we need ideas. Um, but once once I found, once I start looking around, and I think that happened the most to me with the taxi book, because it was it was years of taking taxi rides and listening and, you know, conversations and questions and to sort of um, let the writing happen and realize that it's not all, it doesn't have to all be in your head. You don't have to produce it all, right? You, you, you see, you listen, you dream, you, and then you just start and it happens in its own rhythm in its own way. And, um, it doesn't just spill out finished and fabulous, (laughs) although the best writers make you think that, but, (laughs) Right. No, it's a good. lot of work, yeah. um, a lot of humility, but also just a certain amount of faith in opening yourself up to that possibility of creativity, I guess. It's, it takes I, some I courage. That's, that's fabulous. Cur- courage, right? And I think sometimes the hardest thing to do is to start. Oh, yes. <laughs> Especially if you have a little touch of perfectionism and you want every <laughs> sentence to come yes. out perfectly the first time because you don't want to have to go back and edit, but you just have to accept that you're going to have to at some point, right? Yeah. And once you find the first mistake in a finished book, then you can relax. And I, I did find my first one in this book that I thought, I mean, I, you know, it, I edited so much and, and uh, I had editors helping me and some of them getting in my way. And, but anyway, I found a, it's kind of a typo that I thought I had, I went back to correct, but you know how your eye sees what, mm-hmm. and it's, what you it's, know should uh, be there. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's just the the scientific name of, of the beech tree in, in the first story. It's, it's, there's a, a misspelling that. And probably no one, most would people wouldn't it, notice, but you, but, <laughs> but I would, <laughs> a friend of mine who's an expert on trees, but. Uh, but it doesn't matter because it's the child's memory anyway. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. Maybe blame um, it on, blame it on the yeah. narrator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kathy Taylor, author of trees and other witnesses, an absolutely glorious book that all of you out there, if you have any interest at all in writing and writing beautifully, you need to read immediately. Where can people find your work? Well, it's it's on Amazon. Um, it was published by Austin Macaulay, so uh, on the publisher site also. Um, it's uh, I think it's on Barnes and Noble, and um, it's in local bookstores. One of my one of my missions is to get people to support their local bookstores because they're a, they're a threatened breed, and I love them um, as places. So, uh, in they are in in the local area. They're in the Bookhaven and Salida and um, um, Once Upon a Trapeze and the Book Nook in BB. Awesome. And if your local bookstore does not have her books, request them, and I'm sure that they can get them. Listeners out there today, thank you for visiting with me. And Kathy Taylor, Kathy, thank you for 
everything for writing this book, for sharing it with us. And I know you're going to send me some photos so I can put links and photos up on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. And uh, Kathy, I really look forward to reading your next work and having coffee with you up the Thank road you. someday. We could both Thank talk you about so much, we, it. We did meet in person once. It was glorious. And I it, hope we did again. <laughs> it was glorious. I love meeting new writers. We, we briefly mentioned NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month, which is happening right now. Uh, if you're interested, if you're goal oriented and you want to get a certain number of awards done, check out the nanorimo.org site. I'm, uh, I'm, I, I do it every year. I don't always get 50,000 words, but I definitely make progress. And as a writer, anything you write each day is progress and any kind of progress is, is a good thing. Thank you so much, Laurel, for, for, for this and for all you do. Thank you, Kathy. Writing. And uh, for those of you out there, we'll catch you next time. Again, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay well, stay happy. Keep your ears and your eyes open to the beauty and the inspiration around you. And uh, go hug a tree today. (laughs) (laughs) Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.